Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Dr. Kyle Barrett-Price, a musician who is, uh, on many occasions, beyond repair and beyond compare, a person who has really mastered a number of string instruments and now teaches and runs a festival. Kyle, welcome to Seldom Said. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's our pleasure, I can assure you. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in a family of musicians, um, with the exception of my dad, who says he plays the radio. And um, I started at a very young age and uh, kind of um, withered my way through school, um, doing different programs, including my mom's program, which is a really famous chamber music program in central Ohio, and then um, ended up going to Cleveland Institute of Music uh, for my bachelor's, and then to University of Wisconsin-Madison for my master's, and as you mentioned, my uh, doctorate title, so I just finished my doctorate there, and just moved to Chicago, actually, so that's kind of where I am now, um, and how I've kind of gone along the way to get there. You find yourself in a marvelous academic situation now, Kyle, as I surmise it. Point of fact, as a musician, a festival director, and now an academic student of the art of music, do you feel that a performer should be all of those things to some degree, or simply become the individual who picks up his instrument and allows it to speak for itself? Mm. Uh, I definitely value versatility when it comes to the different things a musician is able to do. Um, I think everyone walks their own path with music, um, and I think it really differs from other fields in the sense that um, one can try to make it competitive, but it's. I feel like everyone really is walking um, on their own road, going their own direction, and so for me, uh, I say that because for me, I think um, the, impo- the value that I have with music is my love, not just for the cello, but music in general. And that has led me to um, starting a music festival where I can collaborate with friends um, who play different instruments and different styles of music and also um, be able to teach. I did, a, a, did my Suzuki pedagogy um, studies at CIM, and so, you know, teaching was a really valuable thing that I was really uh, blessed with growing up and would like to pass forward. And so I think all of these things, um, for me at least, really create a well-rounded experience that allowed me to think about music in various different ways um, beyond just the technicalities of playing the cello, which is my instrument, um, but also thinking about composing and different things like that um, that I've gotten into over the years as well. Uh, there's just so many layers to music and the styles, different styles of music, and I think that's what interests me the most. And it just seems like um, an eternal spring of, of so much possibility uh, within 12 notes. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Experientially, I know there is a mother and a father sitting at the kitchen table right now saying to the sims themselves, if my son comes home and says he wants to be a musician... I am going to put my foot down and tell intuition isn't forthcoming unless you become an economist, a businessman, someone, an accountant, 
who will bring in the green or the red or whatever you want to call it, it would seem that a musician embraces his art. A pragmatic individual works at it. How do you respond to that person who is nervous about pursuing this as a career? It does seem rather tenuous. Mm. I think for... Yeah, that's a good good question. Um, I've always had multiple interests outside of music as well, and I, I come across some friends who... Um, I feel like go through situations similar to the one you kind of brought up. And one of the things that's really interesting, I think, is that, number one, a lot of questions, and I guess this would be more for high school students, that they have when talking to me is um, is what a music degree could really do for them. And I've seen so many professionals in, in the field get a music degree um, to start out, and then sometimes they go to law school or medical school um, and there's also people who, you know, end up going into these different fields and still play music at an extremely high level. So I think if someone's passionate in music, though, uh, you can kind of see it in the creativity and, and seeing them explore those possibilities is what's really, uh, makes a musician so exciting to watch is the depth of the emotional experience they've gone through with the instrument and what they're hoping to communicate with the audience. And I think, uh, you know, those who really feel passionate about it, they they go after it, and you can definitely tell through the performances. And, um, but it's it's amazing the different paths one can go um, and the possibilities that are out there. Uh, for me, in high school, I applied half to conservatories, and the other half were just liberal arts colleges. And I, I always thought I would play music, but wasn't sure if I would major in it. So uh, some people feel like, you know, from the age of three, they knew they were going to be a violin virtuoso. I knew music was going to be a really important part of my life um, growing up, Um, but it went through all sorts of different paths where I got really into composition for a few years and then went back into cello and always played cello throughout. But the one consistent love I I think I had um, was definitely communicating with others about the music that I was I was sharing, the connection that one can experience uh, from a performer to the composer to the audience member, and that relationship between those three parties, I think is what was really um, hooked me. And for me, the most uh, clear avenue to express that in growing up was chamber music. Um, and I played in a lot of different quartets. And then I think as I got into college, I got more invested in solo playing. Um, and that led me to uh, my experiences at Gershwin Competition and also won the Yamaha Young Performing Artist Competition in 2015. So it's been a somewhat unusual path, but it's been really fun. There is the story told, perhaps apocryphal, about Francis of Assisi not knowing what he wanted to do with his life and then hearing birdsong and feeling compelled to sing back. Kyle, did you have a moment, an epiphanal moment where, in a sense, you decided to make the art of music your life focus? Hmm. trying to think of a specific moment. I definitely remember really intense experiences that I was so uh, convinced by that I just started spending hours and hours without realizing what time was going, how much time was going by. And for me, that was probably a really important moment. And this was actually, I think I was 11 years old, and I heard 
Shostakovich Eighth String Quartet for the first time um, live. One of my mom's groups was studying it, and it was such a powerful experience. I remember immediately after that, I was so enthralled by the piece that I did a very unusual thing, I suppose, for an 11-year-old. I took the score, and I copied it by hand. <laughs> and I just spent, I don't know, probably a whole day, multiple days doing that. And I was just so, uh, yeah, totally engrossed in the whole experience of doing it and so excited about it and the creative possibilities that were behind the music. That I think that's uh, part of the love for music. And then when it comes to cello playing, my um, teacher, Mary Peckham, who now directs chamber music at NEC, uh, she always had had a profound experience on me growing up. Um, I've known her since I was essentially born. <laughs> She's a close friend with my mom, and I studied with her at CIM. And I remember freshman and sophomore year really, you know, making a lot of strides on the cello and really enjoying it. But I, 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 I do remember, um, you know, a couple instances. Number one, uh, sophomore year, just kind of making this breakthrough and feeling this connection with the cello that um, was different from what I had felt in the past. And then also a previous experience, uh, when I was 15, I went to Bowdoin International Music Festival in Maine, and I studied with this um, guy, Amir Eldin, who was actually the, the former student of my uh, one of my greatest role models, Uri Vardy, who I just studied with. Uh, and Amir really, I guess, you know, helped me make some strides within a, a three-week program that transformed my thought of what was possible for me in music. I went from thinking, oh, I could, you know, I enjoy playing music to thinking, oh, I could really do this as a career. And um, that was a pretty, um, pretty life-changing moment. And that was simply from... Uh, you know, being in an immersive environment for three weeks and practicing, you know, more consistently uh, than I had been in the past and feeling this freedom with the instrument and this this uh, clear relationship between what I was thinking, what I was singing in my head to what I was hearing on the instrument and the ease of it, I think was something so uh, addictive that it got me hooked. Um, so those kind of experiences um, have really made a huge impact. There really has been each of those teachers, Amir, Mary Peckham, and um, Uri Vardy, who have helped kind of transform my experience with the cello. I remember as a child watching Pablo Casals, an old film, and midway through the performance he began to weep. You used the term love for your art repeatedly in your last answer. The technique can be taught. Do you feel the love can be taught as well? Oh, certainly, yeah. Um, I I have seen my, I think my mom is, is a great example of someone who helps, um, sh- helps kids learn to love music uh, through, and, for her avenues through her chamber music program. 
it's amazing. They see this connection between their instrument, what they're communicating with friends who are playing with them, and how the audience is so engaged with it. That there's something so captivating about that sensation um, that one can experience in solo playing too, uh, most certainly. But I think uh, just using her as an example, uh, chamber music was was that way that she's able to really get students invested in in the relationship one can have with uh, the instrument and the music. And then watching her students go on these incredible journeys where then they get really invested into learning their solo repertoire, taking their auditions, and doing fantastic things. It's, it's been really incredible to watch. Um, and so, you know, one of her former chair music students is Jess Myers, who's the first finalist of the Calador Quartet, um, very well-known string quartet now. And um, so growing up with those kind of people who are were my... I guess, uh, role models that were only a few years older than me, uh, was really great incentive also to think about music in a, in a larger way, um, of possibility for career. And yeah, I, I, it's, it's really fantastic what, what can happen. And even from a directing standpoint in Kroger Lake with the music festival I direct there, the audiences that we were playing for um, in 2012, when we were first starting out, were primarily not classical audiences. Some of them may have been to a classical concert before, but most of them have never heard of WC or Brahms. Never heard of them. Never heard a piece. Um, and you know, it was very. It's a very nice but rural area in upstate New York, and it was just not a part of the the culture there. But to watch people develop such passion for that music, and they because they can see the passion that we perform it with, and they can feel the energy that we play with, um, and then they start to identify with that as part of their being and as part of their um, their joys of life is listening to this kind of music. That's I think really special, and that shows me that um, music um, can be taught, but it's also kind of always there, and it's just kind of igniting that spark within the person who's listening and getting them um, exposed to it uh, again. We're within three minutes of our first break. It's usually the sign of a good program, Kyle, and we certainly appreciate it, my audience and myself. If one deals with perhaps on occasion a high school music program, sitting through the band is a normal experience sitting through the orchestral presentation can be terrifying. It seems more difficult to listen to wind-borne instruments as opposed to string. Two-part question, if I may. Why do you feel that is so? And secondly, why were strings your particular area of concentration? Hmm. Well, I grew up around string instruments in my house all the time. I, my mom is a viola, a violist, violinist, and teaches at Denison University. My sister is a violist and she teaches at Ohio University. And so they, it was around our house. Um, my mom taught her lessons in our living room and we had instruments lying around <laughs> and I naturally picked some up 
Um, I personally loved when I was uh, two or three dabbling on the piano, and my sister loved to try and mimic my mom by teaching me the violin, like my mom would teach her students. And um, but you know, I I found myself on the cello. My aunt played cello, and and I. I have to admit, having something under my chin wasn't always the most comfortable when I was that young. So I liked putting something on the floor. So I took my mom's viola and sit on the floor and put it down like a, a cello like my aunt would and just kind of do some open strings. And that's really how I got um, into it. And I was so young, I was five, you know, when I started playing the cello. Um, but when it comes to the other instruments, uh, I... I don't know if I was even aware of all the instrument possibilities when I was that young and became more aware of them as I got older, obviously. Um, But being a composer, there's something so magnificent about every instrument and its character and how it all goes together. uh, Almost like uh, hearing the symphony orchestra is almost like seeing a society working really well together and telling a story because everyone has a different role and different sound, but it, it, it doesn't clash with one another. Um, but it's interesting when you're talking about, you know, high school bands or orchestras, because, uh, yeah, you can definitely, uh, hear something, you know, with, with strings, it might be a little quieter. You might be able to, um, move around things a little quicker. Um, but also I think with the brass instruments and the wind instruments, there's something so powerful when people pick it up and, uh, you know, get past the first... Kyle, Kyle, if I may, I'm going to have to intrude something I'm loath to do. We're going to be back in a few seconds. We're having our first break at the moment. Our guest is Kyle Barrett-Price, Dr. Kyle Barrett-Price. I should preface it that way. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back program is seldom said. My name is Robert. Special guest, Dr. Kyle Barrett-Price, musical artist, festival coordinator, director, a person who has lent his skill, time, and heart to his art. Kyle, if you would continue with that description of string instrumentation and how in some ways it seems more difficult for young people to master. Sure. Well, yeah, I think it's... uh it's something that, you know, is uh, any instrument, really. It takes so much time and energy. And um, I think with string instruments, uh, having a really good teacher is of the utmost importance. Uh, and some instruments, you know, for me, it was violin when I was four years old, was quite challenging just to balance and really feel free with the instrument. For the cello, it was more natural for me, and I'm sure everyone has their own instrument that seems to fit better, and I think those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to experiment on a lot of different instruments uh, get to have something that really uh, we identify with, and I think that's that's the, the majority of it. Once someone identifies with something, regardless of the specific instrument type, they tend to be more successful on it. And uh, that's what's what's really cool to watch. And thankfully, we have people playing all sorts of different instruments so that we can really have amazing um, symphony orchestras and chamber music and get to experience that collaboration. 
I would imagine, Kyle, that if we met for dinner, somewhere between the hors d'oeuvre and the wine, we'd know each other to some degree. If I were to listen to your music, or anyone in the listening audience were to, do you feel they would know you in some measure of depth after finishing the piece? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think pretty much every performance I've been to, it's, and maybe it's because I'm a performer, I can really almost hear the inner story, the inner dialogue sometimes, or the inner experience of a, of a musician when they play, because you can hear it in the sound um, and how the sound changes. And for me, I I guess my my method of playing... Um, that I've been really excited about is puts me on a journey that's almost, I guess, in the way kind of like a I've heard like a method actor. Um, so I like to take a piece of music um, if I'm performing something and listen to it and see how it makes me feel. And then I like to think of personal experiences and really dive into those personal memories that remind me of that emotion. And that, for me, helps uh, take a uh, subject or the message that the composer is trying to say or trying to give off and allows me to have a personal experience that ties into that connection with the composer and relate it to the audience. And I, it's a weird analogy, but I was listening to a lot of talk shows a couple of years ago and thinking about how it's so fascinating that um, shows like Oprah and uh, Ellen and, and these kind of things where people are just on the edge of their seats listening to people have a conversation. And why is that? I think part of that is just the shared experience that people look for and what they want to hear someone share really something important to them. And that makes them feel like they were a part of something. And I think that's what makes performance really special and I try to bring that to the performances that I give and to the music that I write. The great actor uh, Laurence Olivier once said that when the performance really is going well he is able to step away from consciousness look back on self and actually watch himself performing on stage. Have you ever had that kind of ethereal feeling Kyle? Um, yeah, in a way, um, not all the time. I'd love to figure that all the time. That's the, that's the goal. Um, I think there is something that's can be really, um, mind boggling about how you can feel outside of yourself on certain performances. And it's hard to explain. Uh, a lot of people mention it even like, so I, I'm an avid basketball player too. A lot of people talk about players who are just in the zone and anything they throw up is going to go in the hoop at some points um, and why that is and uh, I feel like in music it's almost similar you can just feel like you hear things and where they're going and it's just you're totally immersed in this experience and you feel like the audience is in the palm of your hand and you can just kind of enjoy it and so in a way you move outside of yourself and you're just experiencing something the same way an audience member would be, but you happen to be playing as well. So it's, it's quite interesting, uh, but it's a fun thing. And I definitely, I once I felt that, I 
I was hooked and wanted to find ways to recapture that feeling and that experience because you can tell after the performance that the audience is quite moved by it as well. Um, yeah. You speak so lovingly of the performance itself. Can you click your heels, make a wish, bring yourself back to childhood and talk about your first formal performance? Hmm. Yeah. I, from what I remember, my first, I, I, so I played, um, I did Suzuki growing up and I remember my first performance on violin, which was pretty funny because it was when I was like three or four and I am left-handed and this is maybe not the most glamorous first public appearance, but it was kind of like playing in a, in a group setting, like violin class almost. And I remember being quite, quite decent at violin, but when I was that young and being left-handed, I always wanted to have the bow in my left hand. So I remember setting up backwards on the instrument a lot of times accidentally without my teacher showing me. And I, so I remember playing Twinkle Twinkle and just watching my teacher and mirroring the string she was going on. But because I was holding it backwards, it put me on the wrong string. So I'd always think, oh, it's just sounding a little different than I, what I am hearing her playing. And uh, so after that, I knew violin wasn't really for me. Um, but, <laughs> but then I, playing cello... Um, I remember immediately having some valuable experiences, and in particular, one experience when I had just started was playing chamber music, actually. My aunt, Constance, who played the cello, wrote a piece um, called Dorian's Dream, and it was in D Dorian mode, uh, which is like C major, but it starts on D and goes to D, so it's um, it's it has like C natural in it. Um, I won't for people with music theory talk, but it was in D. Dorian, and um, the cello only plays the open strings, which was really fun. And because I had just started the cello, that was like the easiest thing to do. Um, but there was something really special about that performance and about playing that, but that was really great. Um, so that was like my earliest memories. When it comes to my first kind of substantial concert experience as a cello like soloist um i think back to a number of things uh, a lot of people will think about their i'm sure their high their uh, college auditions going into undergrad and those experiences um i i personally actually remember an experience in college though um where i was asked to memorize most of my program for my junior recital and i i was a really um, kind of consistently performing chamber musician my whole life. But solo I had not performed that often on. Uh, and so I remember playing this program and there was a lot of concern over whether I really had all this memorized and was it going to sound great and natural things people probably think before recitals. And I remember just this sense of kind of what you're saying, like almost like I left the instrument and I was in a different place and my body was still going through the things and I was just able to enjoy it. And those were pieces like Schumann, uh, Fantasy Stuck and Bach, uh, Third Suite uh, and Barber Sonata. 
And I also got to play with the previous summer at Banff Masterclass Program in Canada. And that was my real first experience of playing like large solo recitals. And that was a really awesome feeling. (laughs) Did you play outdoors in Banff? Didn't, but oh, I wanted to. So I had thought about recording the whole box suite that I was playing in different <laughs> parts of Banff. I still want to go back and do it. <laughs> That's marvelous. A while ago, I had uh, interviewed uh, a composer who worked with Sinatra, and he was talking about how the man would prepare for every performance by reading the lyrics as poetry. How do you prepare for a performance, Kyle? Sorry, say that one more time. How do you prepare for a performance? What measures and techniques do you use? Yeah. Um, well, there's when it comes to the, let's say, the hour or two leading up to performance, um, I some people have a very strict routine they stick by, and I probably should adapt that in some ways. But I also, it really depends on the day and the environment and the type of concert. Um if I'm presenting the concert, so if it's something in upstate New York and I'm playing on it, but I'm also running it, that's a very different experience than if I'm being brought in as a guest to play. Um, I feel comfortable in both roles, but my preparation is slightly different. Um, if I'm bringing brought in as a guest to play, uh, what I like to do, actually what I've found out recently, which kind of goes into that method acting thing that I was talking to you about earlier, is... Uh, not just personal experience, but I like um, reading about different things that I think fit the emotion of the piece that I'm playing. I, I will read the history of the piece and the composer probably one more time, um, just on a basic like online article, uh, admittedly Wikipedia sometimes. <laughs> and um, and then I might read an article that I think you know, oh, this piece is is really soothing and like really beautiful. So I might try to look up a topic that I know, like, okay, like, heartwarming stories and, and read one of those and just try to, like, really adapt the sensation of that because I feel strongly that if I feel the emotion of it, it'll go through my fingertips, which then goes into the instrument, and my my body is more open to um, experiencing that type of emotion um, and giving it often a performance to the listener. So that's kind of my my methodology. Let us say for the purpose of argument, you've had a magnificent performance. Your fingers flew across the strings and everything was as you thought it should be. Is there any resulting apprehension as to how you'll find that point again, that pinnacle in your next performance? Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, It's... I think, and that's where the routine comes in that people start to really lock into is so that they can experience that consistency that they know they're going to experience that night in and night out. But it's hard to say because sometimes it's it's not just the performer, but it's the environment that's so special. And you want to recapture that, but in all honesty, you know, it's, it's not possible to recapture a moment in time and place it again in a future moment in time. And I think I've learned to like let go of that and try to think about what makes each different moment special in its own way. And that allows one to move forward um, because it's, it's hard to go back and recapture 
something that was natural at the time, and it in a way becomes artificial when one does that. So I think um, I just try to, I've, I've learned to try and be as present in the moment when I'm playing as possible, and thinking about all the energy that the audience brings in, and that the presenter does, and the hall, and thinking about interacting with all those spaces and those people. And that, I think, leads to a more um, original or um, congenuine performance, for me at least. We both know the director of the Gershwin Festival competition, Michael Belichavoxer, quite well. How do you feel about competitions in your art form, Kyle? (laughs) Well, competitions are sometimes the greatest thing, and sometimes uh, if people approach them the wrong way, it can be very challenging also um, for people's developments. So there's multiple sides to it. Um, I've always liked competitions, not because I'm competitive. I am in a sports sense uh, when I play sports. When I play music, I'm definitely not, and I think it's because I play sports I make that differentiation. Um, but it's it's a performance opportunity, I think, for me more than anything. And it's a chance to work towards something and to put yourself on the line and experience that uh, pressure or uh, that moment um, that, I don't know why, it's, it's just a fun feeling. And it can be scary at times, undoubtedly, and one can really challenge the way they approach something and there can be a lot of um, challenges you face within yourself, but still there's something that I, I know I improve each time I go out and do it. And even if the competition, the performance doesn't go as well as I'd hope, um, I can always look back to either the, the work leading up to it or the psychology during it. That is why, okay, that's why I didn't maybe play uh, as convincingly as I wanted to. Um, and so I, I learned through those experiences. So I think in that way it's very helpful. And also the networking, people you get to meet, the other performers that you become aware of that you really you know, can uh, adore their playing and, and had no idea they existed before meeting them at this competition or different people like Michael who are great you know, individuals who are running things and, and also amazing performers. Um, so there's all these all these things that you, if you don't go to the competition, you you don't really get to experience. And so, uh, I think it's it's a challenge worth going for, um, although it can be intimidating at times. And I think the the only thing I I try to warn people um, is that if you're going there to win, it's not a guarantee. Um, it never is. It's always this. It's totally subjective. Music is totally subjective. And to not let it create a, a rough patch in their love for music and what they're doing, because that's not, not not the purpose for it. We're about to enter into our second station break, Kyle. When we come back, uh, perhaps you will share some of your experiences at the Gershwin. Allow the listening audience to feel what you felt to deal with the tensions and the rewards you experienced and just talk about experiencing competition in general. I'd also like to ask you 
to analyze what you think a good judge should do and be, what criteria would you use in judging fellow performers? We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Dr. Kyle Barrett Price. Kyle, if you would return to your memories of the Gershwin and your basic criteria for judging performances. Sure. Um, yeah, so I have great memories from the Gershwin competition in New York City. First off, going to New York is always a blast, especially when you're living in Madison, Wisconsin. It's fun to go to the big city and perform and have a, a meaningful performance. Uh, and so I you know, was really grateful for the opportunity to go back and to play for um, a great group of judges and, and audience members. Um, and so it was, it was a lot of, a lot of fun. There were certain things that went really well and other things, you know, wish could have gone better, but still it was, it was a great experience. Um, and I, it was my second, second time doing it. And I, I'd say I did a little better this time um, and got honorable mention. And that was, uh, great. And, you know, listening, it's always funny listening back to your performance. They video recorded it this time. And it's, uh, as a musician, sometimes it's uh, quite strange. You're, you're noticing every little detail when you're playing and then you listen back, you know, oh, it's, it's pretty good actually. So, <laughs> um, and so I definitely had that kind of experience. Um, but just the opportunity to play is so important. And, uh, and so I was really grateful for that. And, um, when it comes to judging, I always wonder how they do it. Such a tough predicament. And for the small things that I've judged, for maybe high school-aged kids, um, I always find that the performances where I'm not thinking about the technicalities, but rather just being moved musically and just kind of in this state of amazement, is generally the performance worth uh, rewarding that day, and it has nothing to do with anyone else. Um, it's all completely subjective, but I think those performances that move me the most, probably, uh, for me at least as a judge, um, in addition to those smaller technicalities, um, would be an important thing to take note of. Now, you are not only a performer and a master of your instrument, if I might say, but you're also the director and creator of the Caroga Lake Festival. Can you give us a description of what you do there and the background, how it started? Um, well, yeah, this, this past summer we just finished our seventh season there, and uh, we had over 90 musicians and 35-plus concerts. Um, and it's been really incredible how it's grown because it started out as a very small uh, retreat-like festival in 2012 that was run out of my grandma's house in the southern Adirondacks. There was eight friends. We played Mendelssohn Octet at the end of the week for a free concert at the chapel, the local chapel. And you could tell there's a, a need for this community. And for us as artists, it's such a great experience, but then also making these relationships with people of the community who are so excited to have us there was, was really a fantastic feeling as a classical artist to feel like you're somewhat celebrities. Um, so over the course of uh, the years, to come after that it always grew by a week 
there's more interest from artists, more interest um, from different audience members from not just that area, but areas around Syracuse and Albany to come and, and watch these concerts uh, was really exciting. And so, you know, last year we had um, five weeks of concerts and resident artists and guest artists coming in together, collaborating across styles of music. And something that's really special that uh, I enjoy putting on, and it's developed into a nonprofit organization in New York State. And um, it features not just music now, but uh, various art forms, including film and writing and visual art. Uh, so we're, we're expanding every, every year. You mentioned uh, presenting a Mendelssohn octet. When played well, Mendelssohn, uh, as you're more aware than I, is quite lovely. How do you mesh instrumentation and performers so that, in a sense, they're inhaling and exhaling the same piece in the proper way? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think um, a lot of the things you learn as a chamber musician is, number one, to the more you connect outside of playing your instrument, the easier it is to communicate while you're playing. Uh, for me, at least, that seems to be the case. So when I'm playing with friends, you're almost able to read each other's minds quicker. And Like, if everyone had a little inside joke, they were able to tell. And what you can see then when you're playing is that if you have an intention, oh, I want to move forward here, or this should be bigger, through your movement and through your eye contact and your communication with them and your experiences outside of playing music, everyone's able to pick up on cues much faster. And so then you hear a cohesive performance um, and a special performance uh, that, you know, even the musicians are feeling like, wow, this is pretty special. And that's when you know the audience is really in it, too. I remember listening to a discussion at university in regard to uh, performers from uh, an impoverished neighborhood, frankly, uh, people who just had fallen in love with music and their love was being encouraged. One student raised his hand and said, yes, but can you riff a classical piece? How would you respond to that? Can you can you listen? Can you speak, uh, repeat the last part? Sorry. Most certainly. Can you riff it? Can you play with it? Can you make it distinctly your own? Can you touch a little bit of Miles Davis as well as Bach in the same breath? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there's something... It's, it's, it's not calculated, though, all the time, I think. Um, there's something natural about someone's experiences listening to various types of music. And then, you know, if I listen to... Jacob Collier is like one of my favorite jazz artists right now and a rock band and a classical band. And those are like my influences. Then when I approach a classical piece, I might hear things differently um, and approach them slightly differently while still honoring the composer. But just my, my influences really can, can change how I sing the song in my head and therefore what comes out of the instrument. And also when it comes to programming, um, I like to personally program things at Kerbal Lake where we are actually playing different genres of music within the same concert and giving people a variety that they can hang on to and say, oh, I really 
love Hotel California. We got to hear that. But then I didn't know about this amazing piece by Mendelssohn. Um, that's really incredible. I want to listen to that again. And so they get hooked on classical music that way, too. There are many who would argue that different instrumentations and instruments themselves are predicated on a style of music. I do remember a gentleman named Joe Venuti who played jazz violin. I'd never heard it before. And it was extraordinary and incredibly so different. Is your cello applicable to anything you wish to play? Yes. I'd say whatever I can hear for the most part, I can at least attempt to play on the cello. I'm not going to say, if if we could all play exactly what we hear in our heads, it, we'd all be incredible virtuosos. But, um, you know, it, that's always the journey, is to take what you hear in your head and put it on the instrument. And um, I think the influences uh, I've experienced and the, the joys that I have listening to um, will bring me a various different destinations almost you know one thinks of yo-yo ma and how incredible it is that you know not just classical music but he's playing a silk road ensemble and always playing different styles bluegrass jazz all these different things and that's because he just loves music in general and the cultures that music has um and he's all about experiencing that and i think that's such a great a great message and, a, and something that i really identify with I can certainly agree. I know there's an album going around Luciano Pavarotti playing with James Brown, and if one talks about an incongruous combination, that would initially be it. And yet, there is something and certain parts of it where the notes seem to mesh and they look at each other and smile. It is rather an odd representation. It's a singular triumph in a strange sort of way. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the genres are really coming together in different ways, and it's just from people collaborating and becoming more connected um, across different genres. And it's exciting to watch. It's different. It's definitely different, but it's, it's fun. Performer, concert director, one names it, you've done it, or are thinking about it. Which do you like most? Oh, um... I really enjoy all of it. I love, you know, what I love most is the, is doing it all, <laughs> the combination <laughs> and how it affects each other. So I'm I'm kind of a jack of all trades, trying to become king. But it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> is there a danger then in having a goal? If one looks for heaven, it would be nice to find it in stages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean this. I don't know. I'm I'm always just so engrossed with what's possible and what different ideas I have to collaborate and do different things that I'm totally willing to just go for it and then see where it takes me. But I'm, so I, I'm not really aware of all the, the dangers per se, but, <laughs> but it's fun. What are your future plans and dreams for the Caroga Festival? Um, well, we're hoping to expand as a nonprofit um, and as an arts collective now, uh, where the Kroger Arts Collective is the umbrella for the music festival and various other programs. Um, so I'm hoping to build little residencies throughout the year and and kind of continue to build it. I it, There's not really a, a true comparable example, but a lot of times 
the easiest one for me to reference is something like an American version of Banff. Um, it's not wasn't my direct influence from starting, but I think it's people kind of understand what Banff Art Center does in the sense of having residencies and academic programs, just a lot of variety um, and how it influences the community. So that's kind of our future goal. We um, are working to, we were donated a 10 and a half acre estate and uh, we're working to build that. But then also we work closely with the town regarding this old amusement park um, that's been broken down. So we're trying to actually uh, work to rebuild that through a revival concert series. And so that's making a lot of good strides. And um, in addition, we've uh, just recently um, got an exciting uh, anonymous donor who has pledged um, a matching grant for a performance venue of up to $125,000. So there's a lot of development, but it, it's uh, it's really exciting to be a part of, and I'm, I'm looking forward to where it goes. It does sound marvelous. Banff has a marvelous corps de ballet. Are you considering making dance a part of the presentations at Caroga? Yeah, certainly. Um, we're close with a few um, big, I guess, dance companies in Utica. Um, Nancy Long runs one of them, and she used to collaborate with Alvin Ailey and uh, a lot of people. And so we're we're connected with different dancers and we haven't fully explored what's possible at the festival yet um, when it comes to implementing dance, but it's one of the things I'm looking forward to the most. Yeah. Any plans, Kyle, to document your festival in print, on film? Any, pl- any thoughts for the future in that regard? Yeah, I would, I'm really hoping, uh, kind of as this arts collective concept, to have a filmmaker who's interested in documenting what's going on there. Um, we've been filming the concerts and doing a lot of archival recordings and such. Uh, we've had a, a documentary filmmaker come in three years ago to do a short one that was um, kind of showing the first three years of our development, but uh, there's been a lot that's happened since then, so we're hoping that something can come about again in the future. So if you know anyone, then... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a documentarian three weeks from today, so <laughs> we'll pour the wine, chill the glasses, and go for it. Yeah, great. <laughs> I guess in final thoughts, uh, if there are individuals out there in the listening audience who would like to attend Caroga, who would like to see what you've created, how might they develop contact? Sure. Um, they can visit our website, which is corogaarts.org, C-A-R-O-G-A-A-R-T-S.org. Um, and they can look at our websites. Uh, we have we don't have our season schedule out for next year yet, uh, as we just finished. Um, but it's this lovely little town in southern Adirondacks, so if anyone wants to go up to Adirondacks and experience it, it's a really beautiful area right on the lake. And they will definitely be immersed when they're there by number of different performances and amazing artists from across the country. It's definitely worth checking out. If I were to in some way forecast you 10 years into the future, what is the dream, Kyle? Where do you hope to be? (laughs) Well, I hope that Kroger Arts Collective becomes a staple in America as a 
creative, um, experimental, experiential place for the arts that's different, um, but um, genuine in its own right um, for what it does when it comes to inspiring artists and audience goers. Um, and I think uh, that's, that's definitely one of my big goals. Um, additionally, I hope that my love for chamber music continues to flourish. I play in a quartet called the Casa Quartet. We won the Coltman competition recently and have started to do some concerts at different locations. So, um, you know, I love seeing parts of the country and the world, and so I hope to travel and play concerts doing either chair music or whatever comes about solo, you know. So that's that's definitely kind of where I see myself. We're unfortunately within one minute of the end of a marvelous program. Is composition in any of your future plans? Yes, definitely. I have, I think, about eight uh, compositions planned out right now, the first of which is being premiered by Carpe Diem String Quartet in May in Columbus, Ohio. So it, it's definitely, it's it's not the primary focus, but I, it's, it's one of my biggest passions, and I love to do it. We're going to have to draw to a close. It's always a sign of a good program that one regrets it. I am assuming and hoping that the listen audience feels the same emotion. I thank you, uh, Dr. Barrett Price, for taking part in the discussion, for sharing your experiences, and for sharing your hopes for what is your own personal creation and dream, the Caroga Festival. There are too few places where the arts can be given free reign. There are too few inspirations where young people can stop, take breath, and listen. Caroga is one of them. One would recommend it highly. The program has been seldom said. My name is Robert. Until next time. <laughs>